Hello, welcome to the Jew3 Project Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew3 Project. All right, thank you for listening to another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jude 3 Project. And I'm really excited today because I have my former professor, um, Dr. Chad Thornhill. Now it's it's easier because he's not grading my papers. <laughs> and there's no there's no pressure. <laughs> uh, welcome, Dr. Thornhill. Thank you, Lisa, very much. <laughs> So um, for our listeners who haven't heard, you've been on here, you're no stranger to G3, you've been on here before, but for those who may be hearing you for the first time, could you um, tell them a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. Uh, so I am the chair of theological studies for the Liberty University School of Divinity, um, which means I do a lot of paperwork, uh, but I also, uh, I also get to oversee uh, and work with our programs at the undergraduate, graduate, and doctoral level um, as it relates to the areas of apologetics, church history, and theology. Uh, my teaching areas primarily are apologetics and New Testament related areas. Um, so one of the main areas I teach in is New Testament Greek. I've been, uh, that's the, the area I've taught in the longest. And my next book actually is going to um, be a uh, be in that area. I'm developing a uh, tools-based approach for folks to get acquainted with Greek um, with the goal of using it in Bible study. So kind of similar to what we did in, in the class that I had you with, but but focus more on applying it. Um, so I'm excited about that. Um, I've been in a teaching role at Liberty since 2009. I've been working at Liberty since 2004. Awesome. Well, you're a great uh, professor. I had you for apologetics and um, Greek tools. I wasn't um, I wasn't ready for Greek yet. <laughs> <laughs> Most people aren't. So. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I remember when you were writing um, this. This was your dissertation, right? Your book. It was. Okay. Yes. I remember you and you were writing because you used to get in debates all the time. Uh, with some of the reform students. Discussion. Uh, <laughs> discussion. Yeah, discussions. <laughs> uh, hallway discussions. So I remember always walking by and hearing uh, the chatter. Um, what was your motivation for writing um, The Chosen People, Election Paul, and in in Second Temple Judaism? Yeah, so the there's a kind of a long backstory, and I the first chapter I go into um, a little bit of it, but Towards the end of my MDiv program, there's kind of two things that came together that, that pointed me into this area. So towards the end of my MDiv program, I uh, took a directed research class with a professor, with uh, Dr. Purser, who's one of our New Testament profs. I did my PhD at, at Liberty um, on the Apocrypha and uh, had just I'd become interested in looking at Second Temple Judaism and hadn't gotten much emphasis in my program. So what I did in that class basically was I read through the Apocrypha several times. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, I kind of, I mentioned in the first chapter, that's kind of a dirty word among, among Protestants. We, we use <laughs> Apocrypha like it's a, you know, like it's a curse word almost. Um, 
but was really interested in uh, and then there were some research elements to the class too obviously tech you know secondary literature and really became interested in exploring that Jewish backdrop and how it relates to the New Testament and as you start reading it I mean you almost immediately start to see connections like you know this this reminds me of this passage kind of stuff um, so along with that I uh, in my PhD program also got exposed to the new perspective which is among some Protestant circles another dirty word um, <laughs> So for folks that aren't familiar, N.T. Wright's probably the most well-known of the New Perspective interpreters. Um, the other two, there are there are many more than these three, but the other two main ones that are included typically are E.P. Sanders and, and James D.G. Dunn. Um, so I got exposed to the New Perspective, and the way that I, diff- you know, different, there's a lot of people kind of don't know what the, the New Perspective is, and they assume uh, on a Popular level, a lot of people are familiar with it because of Wright's interpretation of justification language, and the the reason they're familiar with it is because John Piper engaged with him. You know, they had some back and forth in different books. Um, but the the basic foundation, to me at least, of what the new perspective is is it it's often called the new perspective on Paul, but it really is is more a new perspective on Judaism. Mm -hmm. And then the question is, how does that relate not only to Paul, but but to the New Testament? So what E.P. Sanders argued, um, and it's been his book, Paul and Palestinian Judaism, has been viewed as a pretty big paradigm shift in New Testament studies. It was first published in the 70s um, and has remained in print, which tells you, you know, it's rare that an academic book remains in print for... um, you know, for 40 years. So it tells you kind of the influence that it's had. Um, But what Sanders argues is that whereas a lot of Protestant interpreters, especially since Luther, have taken Paul's arguments against, so one of the phrases that's important in the interpretation is this works of the law that Paul's de- that Paul deals with in Galatians and in Romans, that was taken to mean basically that Paul is arguing against a merit-based form of salvation. That that uh, so the Jewish people were basically trying to earn their salvation by doing, and it's sometimes flattened out as as just by doing good works. And so that's been you know the dominant interpretation of those two books. I think since the Reformation, um, and most of the time you hear you hear those passages preached, that's probably the interpretation that you're hearing. What Sanders argued is that we've we've gotten Judaism wrong, uh, that, that Second Temple Judaism shouldn't be understood as a works-based um, form of salvation, but that instead it should be viewed, and the terminology that he gave to it was, was covenantal gnomism. And what he means by that basically is, the gnomism, the law aspect, uh, come, the Greek word namos is the, the word for law. The law aspect of the of Judaism needs to be understood under the umbrella of the covenant. And so it's it's not that they were trying to do good works in order to be saved. The, the works aspect of, of covenantal gnomism is basically um, sort of a maintenance of relationship. So... Uh, salvation is Sanders would say, you know, for Jews just as it was for for Paul and for Christ, early Christians, salvation is by grace. It's graciously given by God. It's not something that we we are trying to earn through human effort. But there's a response that comes um, basically on if you want to put it in you know in contractual terms. Once you sign on the dotted line of the covenant, um, 
there are obligations that ensue from that, and that's where that's where the works aspect or the law aspect comes into play. Um, so there are you know there are different aspects of Sanders' argument that have been critiqued, and I I critique his view of election in in uh, the book that I just put out uh, that I I think he's uh, reading it a little too Protestantly, reading Judaism a little too Protestantly. Um, but on the whole, that corrective that Sanders offered, most New Testament scholars have accepted as a valid one because of what you find in, in the Second Temple literature. When we talk about Second Temple literature, we're talking about um, basically the Apocrypha, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and then uh, most of the, the Old Testament pseudepigrapha, so books like Jubilees and First Enoch uh, and the Testament of the Twelve Patriarchs and others are included in that collection. And in, in, in the Apocrypha, you have books like First and Second Maccabees and the Wisdom of Solomon, the Wisdom of Ben Sira, um, Judith, etc., etc. So it it it's reoriented the discussion on Paul in that if Paul's not arguing against works based salvation, then what exactly is going on in Romans and Galatians? And the different new perspective interpreters. Um, take varying degrees of different interpretations on what exactly Paul is doing, but they're all starting basically from that assumption that he's not arguing against a works-based salvation because that's not what Second Temple Judaism was actually about. Um, so the combination of inter- actually interacting with some of that Second Temple literature and then getting acquainted with the new perspective kind of led me into thinking about how we interpret the New Testament within that Jewish context. And one of the books, um, so along the journey then towards the end of my doctoral program, uh, I did a a course on Pauline theology. And one of the things I was looking at in that course was Paul interacting with, um, you know, framing Paul based on this, the second temple Jewish background. And uh, one of the books that I interacted with, as a result of that class was a book called The Survivors of Israel uh, by a, a scholar uh, by the name of Mark Adam Elliott. And it was really that book that sort of became the catalyst for um, helping me think through how Jews understood election and then how that relates to what's going on in, in Paul's letters. Um, so out of that class came a paper, and then basically out of that paper came came the dissertation, and eventually out of the dissertation came came a book. So when people, you know, occasionally people have asked me how long, you know, how long did it take you to write the book? And um, you know, there's a sense in which the answer was I started I started writing it, <laughs> um, you know, back in 2006 or seven, uh, <laughs> towards the end of my MDiv program, because that's when that's when some of that journey of thought began um, and then again it became a paper which became a dissertation which which became a book so there's a very long answer to um, you know and there's it's an almost 10 year process from when I started some of the thinking that influenced where I where I ended up coming out on the issue did you um, from your research uh, what was the most um, challenging um, parts as far as like your own presuppositions you know, sometimes as you're researching, uh, you're, <laughs> what you think you're going to discover is something totally different. Was there any moments like that 
for you during your yeah so so the view that I'm I'm basically advocating for in the book is what's known as a, a corporate understanding or a collective understanding of election. Mm-hmm. Uh, that wasn't a view. It's it's more held by um, Wesleyans and Arminians. Uh, I don't I don't necessarily consider myself an Arminian in the in the in the uh, classical sense of the term in terms of Arminian theology. Um, there are aspects of it I think it's help that are helpful. There are there are other aspects I disagree with, but so that's the view that I ended up basically arguing for, and it, that wasn't the position that I held prior to um, prior to getting into the literature. I was more of the so you know kind of how most people who don't interpret Paul's election texts through a more reformed uh, kind of Augustinian or Calvinistic lens. Tend to tend to say something like you know election is based on foreknowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was I was sort of in that general camp, but as I got into the background literature and then the dominoes kind of started falling for what I think this meant for Paul. Um, that that was one of the the shifts that came in my view, and the other the other biggest one it was just simply going back and. Um, rereading some of these Pauline passages that, you know, more or less until you get into the literature, I think most people are just familiar with, with the traditional interpretations. Um, so having that background inform how I'm reading these letters, then, you know, I st- you, you just start asking different questions about what exactly is going on. One of the, one of the interesting things that came out of this, um, that I hadn't noticed before was in the major passages where Paul is talking about election and the, and the two biggest, you know, densest ones are Ephesians one and two and Romans nine to 11. But, um, I also look at some places in first Corinthians and in uh, first and second Corinthians and in Galatians, um, in the book as well. But in these two dense passages and then also in Galatians and also in first Corinthians, um, what Paul's, to me at least, what Paul's really interacting with are these Jew-Gentile tensions that are going on. Mm-hmm. And his his discussion of election, um, I think when we frame it in that context, I think it we end up coming at a slightly different interpretation. And so kind of the way that I, I pose it is I think the the question that Paul is answering is less – how are people God's people? Uh, in other words, he's not looking at what's sometimes called the order salutis, the you know the order of salvation. So God first you know chooses, and then he uh, you know he he predestines, and then he um, you know saves, then he justifies, then he etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. I think what what Paul's the the question that he's answering instead is not who are uh, how are people God's people, but who are God's people, mm-hmm. and. The, the big issue that he's dealing, the two big issues that I think he's dealing with in most of those passages, are how do we deal with this Gentile inclusion coming from our our Jewish, you know, presuppositions basically, and then how does this Jesus guy, <laughs> uh, you know, how does how does um, how does Jesus as the Messiah reorient uh, how we as as Jews have thought about this, and in his letters, he's obviously dealing with primarily Gentile audiences. But Paul himself is, you know, is coming from that Jewish perspective. Um, so 
it really becomes, um, in a sense, which is one of the in- interesting things, it really becomes a theological question that arises out of ethnic differences, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, I hadn't, I hadn't really seen a lot of discussion about election prior to doing research mm-hmm. um, for the dissertation in the book that, that framed it that way. It's, it usually gets framed, the interpretation issues usually get framed in the theological discussion. Um, but I think what's driving the theological discussion in these letters is really these, these ethnic issues that are arising between what it means for these Gentiles to now be in God's people. Mm-hmm. And I think that's helpful because there seems to be, in, in putting this into perspective uh, with apologetics, um, when you talk to people who have um, issues with scripture, they'll point to passages um, and say, well, if you interpret um, what Paul is saying and then what James is saying, there seems right. to be yeah. a conflict um, so it's important that we're able to, as we're defending the faith, be able to mm-hmm. articulate, you know, how scripture fits together. Mm-hmm. And th- these passages like the Ephesians 1 and 2 and Romans 9 through 11 can be really difficult yes. um, when you're trying to <laughs> defend the faith um, because people point to these passages and, and say, well, what? how can we reconcile this and 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 a passage and James? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and um, you know, there's a sense in which I think James and, and and Paul are just talking about two different things, and because they're using similar language, we make them talk about the same thing, um, <laughs> even though perhaps they're not. The other thing that is um, interesting, and it's funny. I'll, I'll use a, uh, I'll use just a, an example. But we were we were at an ice cream place last summer. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a there was a pastor in line ahead of us, and he was talking to someone in his congregation, and they were talking about the James Paul thing. And, and the person, you know, brought up, well, you know, Paul says we're justified by faith and not by works, and James says we're justified by works and not by faith alone. And the pastor goes, oh, James doesn't say that. Um, <laughs> I'm like, no, no, he does. <laughs> those are those are like his exact words. Um, the thing that's the the other thing that's interesting is when you come to. Uh, Romans 2, in, in Romans 2.13, we have Paul saying, it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be righteous. There's no mention of faith there, right? It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's about doing. And so we've, um, and it's interesting too, you know, Galatians 3 is, is one of the places that I think some of this comes up, but um, which I, 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 I go through in one of the chapters on the book. But even as you look at how different translations deal with those passages, a lot of times the Greek is is a little bit I don't I don't want to say vague, but it's not saying specifically what sometimes our translations interpret it to be saying. Um, so there's a place in, in Galatians three, for example, where Paul says he's talking about those who are who are from the law. He uses the the preposition ek, which can mean by, it can mean other things, but it, it typically has this kind of spatial sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and and mean from so from within or or from or from out of or something like that, and so he says you know those who are from the law and and a number of our translations will say something like those who are relying on the law or or those who are doing the law and there's no verb there it's just those who are from the law, mm-hmm. um, so you know that 
the the issues that were going on in the in the Reformation and, and really between Luther and and the uh, Roman Catholic Church. Um, that's continued to, re- I think, in a lot of ways to frame how most people are reading Paul. Whereas, what I, I'm hoping to do in the book is to, you know, put, point the conversation back to more what's going on in the first century, because um, Paul's concerns, you know, we can't assume that Paul's concerns are what Luther's concerns were. And even though Luther interpreted Paul, and this isn't to say Luther got everything wrong, um, but even though Luther interpreted uh, Paul in a certain way in light of his context, that doesn't mean necessarily that's exactly what, what Paul's context in the first century was. Mm-hmm. So we, we end up in a lot of Protestant theology having, I think, too hard of a division between works and faith. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's not to say we should try to smuggle in, you know, some sort of works-based <laughs> salvation. But even the, even the word for faith, the word pistis, um, if you look it up in some of the standard lexicons like, like BDAG or Loanida, they usually indicate that there are multiple dimensions to it, and, and one of them is simply belief. So it's there's sort of just you believe something about there's there's like a cognitive dimension. You have a certain understanding of information, and then there's a, a relational sense, which is trust. But there's also a behavioral sense, which is is fidelity or faithfulness. And the word can be translated in different contexts in any of those ways as belief, as trust, or as as fidelity or faithfulness. Um, so faith itself in, in New Testament vocabulary is a lot broader than just what you believe. And that's sometimes how we, I think, boil it down um, in our theology and in evangelicalism. Whereas in the New Testament, even that category, I think, is it's uh, a little bit broader and, and the lines are a little bit, um, you know, less rigid than sometimes we make them. So... There's a you know there's a sense in which um, you know we I think one of the unfortunate things is sometimes we view salvation simply as either being forgiven of sins or um, you know not going to hell basically um, <laughs> and it's not that those things are those two things are completely misguided but the to me the the bigger picture of salvation in the New Testament, or one of the things that that we need to, I think, reclaim is that transformation is salvation. Um, Those aren't things that we should view as necessarily separate. When God saves someone, he transforms them, and that doesn't happen instantaneously, obviously. Um, But to be saved is to be becoming conformed to the image of Christ. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, I think we have this sort of one step, two step, and it's almost like sometimes we make the second part, the behavioral part, kind of optional. Um, mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's good. I'm, I'm, I'm going to heaven. Um, you know, it's I, God forgave me of my sins. Eternal and, security. Right. Yeah. So I prayed the prayer. I got my, I got my get out of hell free card, and you know, I'm good to go. Um, and that's, you know, I think so completely foreign to the New Testament. The, the other thing that's really interesting, you know, we talk about the Paul James dynamic, and I don't, I don't get into the to the gospels in the book um long term that's hopefully another project that that's down the road that i'm starting to work on right now but um you know try to find saved by faith language in the gospels um you know it's it's not there and so it's not that it's not that i think 
Paul and Jesus are in conflict with one another. Um, but again, you have to look at Paul and what he's saying in his context and why he's saying it in that context. Whereas Jesus is, again, more of that, I think you find more of that transformational language. Um, one of the, you know, in the Gospel of Mark, um, the way that salvation is portrayed, I think most clearly, Jesus summons to salvation is at the end of Mark 8. And it's, if, if you're going to follow me, you need to pick up your cross. Uh, if you're going to be my disciple, you know, you need to take up your cross and, and follow me and basically be, be willing to die. And so it's a complete reorientation of your life and a complete surrender of your life to Christ is the kind of language that we tend to find in the Gospels. And so there, there's more behavioral connections than, than how people have tended to read, to read Paul. So I think the more that we see how connected those things are, I think the, the healthier um, our churches will be as a result uh, when people understand that, um, you know, there's, it's not just, you know, a way to kind of, I think, popularly put it, it's not just a saved from, but it's, you know, it's a saved for. Um, and even, again, when you look at just sort of lexical data, the word we get our English word, or we don't get our English word, but the, the word that's translated in English as salvation, the word group, which is esodzo or soteria, um, a part of its range is me of part of its range of meaning can be to be healed or to be restored. Mm-hmm. Um, so even again, the word itself, I think implies that, that, um, you know, there's more to the story than just, than just being forgiven or not going to hell. Um, there's, there's a bigger, and I think elect, I think what, you know, Paul's election theology, I think in a lot of ways ties into that as well. And I think it's it's helpful as you're even talking about, you know, reading the Gospels that sometimes because when we start to study theology, we start with systematic theology. Mm-hmm. So then we look back at the Bible and try to yep. fit everything. And I know before I started seminary, I had that problem. And when stuff yep. didn't fit, it would be really confusing. <laughs> yep. And um, I just I. You know, one of the things that seminary freed me up to do was like, just look at the Bible. You don't have to, (laughs) you don't have to make everything fit. Your biblical theology is more important than systematic. So everything's not going to fit into like this tight. Well, and I wouldn't maybe say more important, but it's, it, it should precede it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So to me, you know, the process that, that should be, and when you say this, right, it's like, this is impossible. Uh, no one, no one person in their lifetime can do this, which is, I think the other reason that it's important that we understand theology as, as a community endeavor. Um, we need to get some of this over individualized Westernism out of our blood in, in the, in the Western church. Um, but you know, theology should start as basically hermeneutics and interpretation. It should be, um, not just look in, and the other thing that we tend to do too often, I think, as well, is we look at passages in isolation. So we we look at again Paul. We maybe read Romans three, and you know, there's there's the Romans road tradition of you know how do you get a person saved? Well, here's the five verses. Um, well, you know, Paul's not writing to the Romans to get them saved; they're already saved. So his his purpose isn't isn't necessarily what what the Romans road purpose would be. So how do you interpret Romans three in 
light of one and two, and then looking forward to four and five and six and so on and so forth. And the same thing, you know, with, with the Gospels. How do you understand this particular passage in light of the whole thing that Matthew is doing or the whole thing that Mark is doing? And when you look as well, and, and uh, you know, Ben Witherington um, is one of the, the folks that's helped this with me because he's done a lot of work on rhetoric and, and um, morality and whatnot. Um, but one of the things that he emphasizes is, you know, these, these letters in these books weren't originally read. Um, so not everyone had a copy and, you know, you sit down at your desk with your, your lexicon and, (laughs) you know, you write your notes and your margin of your, of your study papyri or whatever. Uh, you know, each church more than likely, and especially in the early church, they wouldn't have even had copies of all of these books. So they would have had copies of certain books and when they came together to um, hear them, they would most likely be read from start to finish in, in one sitting. Um, or at least they would be reading large chunks of them in one sitting. So they wouldn't just read a verse and then, you know, think about, well, what does this verse mean for me? Or what's God saying to me through it? And that, not that that's a bad question to ask. But they're hearing these things. First of all, they're hearing them. So one person is getting up and reading it, and they're hearing them. Um, But they're hearing it in light of what comes before and what comes after. They're hearing the flow of thought. And I think the more we do that in our own study, the the more that that um, can help us see things, like you mentioned, through that kind of biblical theological lens rather than you know, you know what is what does heaven look like in in the New Testament? And so we go to our glossary or whatever our index in our Bible, and we look up heaven, and we just find the t- the ten passages that are marked there, and then we think we know everything there is to, you know to know about heaven. And when we do that, we completely ignore why heaven's being talked about in a certain passage and in a certain context, and and what the purpose of it is. So, um, so yeah, there's definitely a sense I think in which when we when we kind of take each book for what it is and for what it is and we try to understand the purpose that that author is trying to accomplish and then we we read the whole in light of that bigger picture um i i think that's a more fruitful approach and then step two becomes okay so how do all these parts fit together and that's where you know systematic theology would would um uh, eventually have some help to us. How does what Mark is saying fit with what Matthew's saying, fit with what Paul is saying? But that that should start on the ground level by interpreting those texts in their context within the book of, uh, you know, as a whole, and then asking those those bigger questions. Yeah. And it's, it's definitely helpful just to read large, like read through books. Um, mm-hmm. In the last 40 days, I just read through the, the New Testament. I've Found like one of those read the Bible in forty the New Testament in forty days thing, mm-hmm. and in addition to my you know in depth study, I just read through, yeah. and it, you get such a different perspective when you just make yourself read. You know, I've read it before, but I don't think in th- that kind of condensed amount of time where I force myself to just you know go through, and then you see it in such a different light because it's like you're looking at the whole forest and not just. <laughs> the tree. Yeah. So. Yeah, and it you know, it's interesting too how you see things when you do that that 
you haven't seen before. So one of the one of the things that's popped out to me recently is reading reading rereading the parables by paying attention to who Jesus is talking to mm-hmm. when the parables are being taught. And so you have in you know in Luke's uh, parable of the prodigal son in uh, in Luke fifteen, you have Jesus talking to the Pharisees, mm-hmm. and what I think becomes clear when you read it in that context is the Pharisees are. He's basically saying the Pharisees are the older brother. Uh, so he, they're, they're chastising him for how he interacts with tax collectors and sinners. And so the tax collectors and sinners, they're the runaway child. <laughs> they're the one that's been brought back to the fold. And instead of the Pharisees being glad for that, um, they're, they're basically, they have a problem with essentially what Jesus is saying is you have a problem with what God has done by, uh, bringing these tax collectors and sinners through repentance and his into his people and so just as the prodigal son you know the father embraces him i think is picturing how god embraces is embracing the tax collectors and the sinners and the older son is the pharisees who are saying man we wish that hadn't happened uh you know look at what about us god you know um so yeah so when you just read the the parable and you don't pay attention to that larger context you i think you you miss the point of what jesus is saying but when you read it um and so we kind of make this generalized theological point about it. But when you read it in that context, you can see that, that Jesus is actually critiquing their attitude towards how he's interacting with, with tax collectors and sinners. And, and that's why he's giving the parable in the context of Luke 15. So there's all sorts of little things like that that just you, you come to have a different appreciation for a certain passage when you kind of step back and look at the bigger picture. Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Thornhill. I definitely think this conversation, um, will encourage our listeners. What would you like to leave with our listeners in relationship to your book and how can they, um, any resources and how they can get in contact with you via social media or your website? Yeah. So obviously they, they will all want to go out and buy it. That would be the first, (laughs) um, um, I think, uh, some of the feedback that I've gotten so far from people who don't necessarily follow me theologically um, has been they've they found it helpful as a way to start get to get oriented to the Jewish context of the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Um, so, folks that are there are certainly other resources out there that do that, um, but f- so folks that are interested in in that or or interested in kind of the new perspective discussion and seeing how that plays out in to how we interpret the new testament um i I think that'll be just a a helpful you know thought exercise and um you know some of the some of the implications that i draw from it this isn't this isn't heavy in the book it's more of a you know an academic book than a than a practical one but um, some of the implications that i try to draw from it are the importance of um how the new testament uh, really admonishes God's people to be unified and how it does that, um, you know, partic- particularly with the Jew-Gentile divide, how it, it does that in a way that doesn't, um, doesn't erase ethnic distinctions, but it also expects us, I think, to have 
a other focused posture. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's one of the problems, right? Is it, it, that Paul's dealing with, especially in Galatians, is Jews that are expecting Gentiles to do the things that Jews do. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that has some, you know, some implications for how we, you know, there's a sense again, I, I think, in which Paul's election theology is very much about, to, to put it in our modern terms, it's about racial <laughs> racial reconciliation within God's people. Um, so I, I think there are some implications there when we have that sort of frame of understanding for what Paul's doing. And then, you know, the ethical dimension as well, that, that God, um, the kind of people God expects his people to be are, are people who are, who look different from the rest of the world. Um, um, so those are some of, you know, some of the implications that I, that I draw out that I hope, um, I hope will be helpful. And again, um, just in, in orienting people to a, a, maybe a different way of reading Paul and especially to, um, trying to appreciate that that first century context because if we're not this is this is how I sometimes you know say it to my students but if if we're not putting Paul in that context what context are we putting him in mm-hmm. uh, are we putting him in our context are we putting him in a 16th century context are we putting him in a 4th century context you know what's 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 the context that we're reading Paul in and our hermeneutical principles for, you know, for most evangelicals is where we want to interpret scripture contextually. And that doesn't just mean in flow of thought, though it does mean that, but it also means in light of history and in light of culture, uh, in light of social issues that were going on in the, in the ancient world. Um, so, you know, that's, that's another important thing that I, I hope I try to emphasize throughout the book is, is not just putting him in context, but putting him in the right context and how that can um, help us understand what's actually going on. Awesome. Well, I definitely encourage um, people to get um, your book. Uh, what's your Twitter handle? My Twitter handle, yes, yeah, at Chad Thornhill. It's very easy to remember. And uh, um, I also have a page on Academia. Um, if, if they're interested there, I have a few articles that are posted up there. So if, if they want to get some free stuff to read, um, they can get some free stuff there and, and then, you know, maybe if that hooks them, then they can go buy the book. So, (laughs) (laughs) all right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Thornhill. All right. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast. You can catch all our past episodes at www.jude3project.com backslash podcast. You can follow us on iTunes by searching Jude 3 Project. Also, you can follow us on Twitter at Jude 3 Project, on Instagram at Jude 3 Project, and on Facebook at facebook.com. Um, backslash Jude 3 project and remember you can donate on our site so if this um, this podcast and this ministry is a blessing to you help support us financially um, by going on our website at jude3project.com and hitting the donate tab um, and donating consider donating to us thank you so much remember at the Jude 3 project we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it